you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Psalm chapter 108, just as was read. In the last couple years, uh, throughout the pandemic and just everything that's happened uh, within our culture and society, we've learned uh, a lot about ourselves, I think. I think uh, if you were to look at uh, different uh, individuals who study culture and society and politics and uh, just humans in general, whoever studies those things, uh, I think that they're gonna find, and if they are already finding, so many different interesting things about the way that we operate as humans. And maybe for yourself, uh, you found the same thing, that coming out of the pandemic, you just began to operate and think and act in just a different way than you did before. Uh, for some of you, uh, you came out of the pandemic with a TikTok addiction. Um, and, uh, and I know that's not just a student thing. That's also, I think a lot of people uh, are, have become more addicted to their phones and applications on their phones. Um, some of you may have found out uh, how much you like to be alone right? Uh, you spent so much time alone, you began to realize, like, maybe I don't actually like people that much, um, and so I would prefer to be alone. Or maybe there's the opposite, that you spent so much time uh, alone that you just are like, man, I need people. I need to be around people more often. I just want to hang out with them. I want to be around family and friends. Like, like I do not want to be in my house one second longer. Uh, maybe some of you figured out how much better it is to work from home. And now you, this, this past year, have been forced to uh, go back into the office and you forgot about how much you didn't like it. Uh, and you forgot about how, uh, how, how just, uh, yeah, whatever, how terrible it is um, and how much more you like to work from home. Or maybe, again, maybe the opposite. Um, another thing that we found from the pandemic uh, and kind of a, a phrase that's come out of the pandemic was this idea of, uh, of comfort shows. Uh, there is this, this kind of uh, cultural phrase that you and I uh, have a comfort show, a com comfort television show. A comfort television show is essentially the show that you watch over and over and over again, no matter what season, because you know, and it just feels good to watch. Uh, maybe uh, you've ended a show. I know for my wife and I, uh, we'll end a show, a TV show that we've been watching and we really like, and then we get done with that show. And then uh, we find ourselves every night uh, going to Netflix and just staring and, and just kind of browsing through the Netflix home screen, looking at all the titles saying, wow, wouldn't that be great? Well, I don't really feel like that right now. Or this looks like an awesome show, but I don't really feel like that. that seems, and then you just end up going right back to the office again, right? Or you end up going right back to watching uh, like a reality TV show. We watch Shark Tank uh, when we, we just don't know what to watch. There's these like comfort shows that we have uh, that, that kind of build up this, this affection within our hearts uh, because we know how it turns out. We know the way that it will play out. We, even though we know how the characters will end up, we still love it. We've memorized every line. So we can share everything about it. So the question is, why do we do this? What stemmed out of, and I'm sure it was even before the pandemic, but what stemmed out of the pandemic that's created this within us? And I looked into this probably uh, way too closely, but there's a psychologist 
uh, by the name of Lucy Spicer that, that talked about this, this comfort show idea. Like, why do we have these comfort television shows? She says, uncertainty is anxiety's fuel. And a lot of uh, anxious thoughts are future-focused, and the pandemic brought a significant lack of control over what the, the future would look like. Given this backdrop, it's unsurprising that we look for security, familiarity, and routine in our everyday lives to gain a sense of control. Sameness and repetition can help reduce anxiety as we have an existing knowledge of how things are likely to be and in turn dial back uncertainty and worry. We can watch what we know over and over again without any surprises, therefore giving us the control and predictability we need in an unpredictable global situation. I think she's absolutely right. We have these things in our life, and for you, it may not be TV. It may be a certain place. It may be a certain person. It may be a certain song that you can listen to in the car. It may be a moment in time that you can think back on in the past and you pull up pictures to be able to remember that. We all kind of have these things that comfort us in times of high stress, high anxiety, high emotion that we, we can recall that give us just this feeling of, well, that was, was good and, and comforting. And I had control over that situation. I know exactly how it played out. So I'm gonna resource that to make me feel better. And Psalm 108 is David's comfort Psalm. See, Psalm 108 isn't a new Psalm. Psalm 108 is actually two Psalms that have been pushed together from two different times of David's life. Now, there is some different iterations and there's some things, that, the ways that he phrased certain things that are a little bit different. And of course, the Holy Spirit still moves and is having him write something that is a little bit different. But by and large, if you go to different Psalms, you will see that they are the same Psalms just placed in Psalm 108. So if you look at Psalms verses one through six, and then you go to Psalm 57, you will see that David has literally borrowed this chunk of scripture and then placed it in Psalm 108. And in Psalm 57, David is writing under duress. He is writing the Psalm. He is sharing the thoughts of his heart as a guy by the name of King Saul is hunting after him and he's hiding out in a cave and he writes this uh, idea of praising the Lord. The same thing in verses six through 13, uh, we see in Psalm 60, uh, the exact same words and phrasings. We see that uh, David is essentially celebrating this uh, victory that he has over the Edomites and what God has to say about that specific situation. So David recalls that Psalm as well. And so David takes this idea from Psalm chapter 57, then he takes this idea from Psalm chapter 60, and then he meshes them together as one to speak to a specific situation that is going on in his life. And commentators believe that David is going through something really, really hard, really, really difficult in Psalm 108. And so he goes back in his mind to these Psalms to be able to bring him comfort, to be able to help the anxiety that he's feeling, to be able to give him a sense of control and to relieve his worry. And the main idea that we're gonna get out of Psalm 108 by David taking these two Psalms and matching them together is this, and this is what we're gonna play with. It says, the Lord's mighty works of the past provide confidence 
to face challenges in the present. We see in Psalm 108 that, that the Lord's mighty, awesome works of the past that David recalls to be able to bring it about in 108 is what we can use as a basis of our confidence to face challenges in the present. Notice in verse one, in Psalm 108, David states, my heart is confident, O God. And this is the same thing, again, that he's gonna say in Psalm 57. However, there's a little bit of a difference between the statement in Psalm 57 and the statement in Psalm 108. If you put your thumb in Psalm 57 and you look at it, David says in Psalm 57, my heart is confident, O God. And then he says it again. He says, my heart is confident. Now, whenever in biblical text, you see a writer or a speaker uh, state something twice, most likely it's because they're attempting to uh, emphasize that particular uh, point and drive it home. They really wanna make sure that you know they feel that way or they are emphatic about what they're trying to say. So David's saying in Psalm 57, my heart is confident. I wanna rest my heart. I wanna be steadfast, some translations say. I wanna be steadfast in who God is. But you'll notice in Psalm 108, when he's restating the same thing, he leaves it off and he says, just my heart is confident, God. He just states it once. He's not repeating it again. And this is uh, more my own thoughts and conjecture. So uh, David could not be feeling this way. This is just more me reading into the text. But I wonder if David is not feeling the same amount of confidence, security, and steadfastness that he did feel in Psalm 57. That's the reason why in Psalm 57, he stated how confident he was and was emphatic about it. I wonder if David is recalling back to these Psalms, almost pleading and begging the Lord, bring me confidence. Man, these troubles, these worries, all the things that fill my life, they are overwhelming me. So allow me to feel the same confidence that I felt back in that cave. Give me the ability to be withstand whatever I may face and give me that steadfastness. And the beautiful thing is, and what I love about that is that Dave is just like me. And there's so many times in my life where I, I just don't feel confident. Something pops up, worries begin to creep in, not really sure how all life may end up getting handled. And I would love to be able to have complete confidence. Like how awesome would it be if when we got a diagnosis in our life, when, when a doctor said something that just absolutely floors us, it doesn't shake us in the way that it would if we didn't have confidence. How awesome would it be if when talks of recession and the economy going under, that it doesn't make us worried or afraid because we have confidence that God's got this, that we know he's in control. I'm not anxious about that. How awesome would that be? How awesome would it be if when heartbreak happened in our life, it didn't own our every thought, that we were able to withstand that and we knew that we were loved eternally and secured by the savior of the world. How awesome would it be to have that kind of confidence? I want that. I'm sure you want that. And David 
is recalling that, asking for that, begging for that as he is going to go forward into this difficulty that he is going through. So the question is, how do we receive that? How do we receive a confidence that is steadfast, that is rooted in the Lord and and, and knows and understands who he is and what he has accomplished? What are the signs and the symptoms of that heart? Well, I think David's gonna spell it out all throughout the psalm. And the first thing that we see here in this psalm is that a confident heart, the first symptom of a confident heart, worships in the worry. A confident heart worships in the worry. Look what David says right in the beginning of this. Trouble has come. He's facing something really hard. There's something really, really difficult. And David gears up. And what does he say? He says, I will sing praise. I will sing praise with the whole of my being. He then says, wake up, harp and lyre, the instruments that he's going to praise God with. He's He's saying, wake up, harp and lyre. I will wake up the dawn. I will get up early. I'm going to grab my harp and lyre. I'm going to go before the Lord and I'm going to sing. I am going to praise. I'm going to enter before the Lord to worship immediately. And remember and understand, like David hasn't seen the end result to this Uh, problem that he's facing. David's still waiting for it, yet he's gonna go before the Lord and worship to praise him and thank him for whatever victories may lay within the problems that he's facing. And I don't know about you, like that's not, if I'm honest, that's not where my heart goes first and foremost. Like first, like my heart goes to, man, how can we accomplish this problem? How can we eliminate it? What would it look like if I just, It was over with. What can I work to be able to get done so it's gone? Who can I talk to to make sure it's just over? I don't wanna worry about it. I don't wanna think about it. I'm just gonna get it done. We don't need to sing. We don't need to worship. Let's just work this thing out. That's my first gut reaction. And then my second reaction that I think a lot of us struggle with is that like, man, we wanna escape. Like worries coming, troubles on the rise. We know that something's going on in our personal life. We just wanna run away from it. Like we just wanna do whatever we can to be able to escape from the situation. And we have a variety of different ways and techniques that we know to be able to allow us to mentally, spiritually, physically escape from those things. Like for you, maybe, maybe it's through work. Like you know that if you bury yourself in enough work, you can kind of drown out the noise of everything that's going on. And if you just kind of fill your calendar up, then you'll be good. You won't have to worry about the situation. You can escape through work. Maybe it's through entertainment. If you fill up enough of your life with entertainment and you listen to enough things, you literally don't have to hear the outside world, but you can constantly just throw your AirPods in, listen to podcasts and listen to whatever, then maybe you can escape from it. Like you don't have to hear anything about it, so you're good. Maybe it's through substances. Maybe there's drugs and alcohol that you know that you can rely on that give you a moment of reprieve to be able to escape from that situation. Maybe it's through social media that if you can curate and create a specific image that you wanna be able to create, you can kind of live in that image and you don't have to worry about what's going on in your life. We have these methods and these modes of escape. We don't enter into worship. We try to run away from it so that we can kind of heal the problem. But David says, no, No, true safety, security, and confidence in the midst of worry and anxiety is found in worship, not escape. We charge forward 
to the Lord, who's the only one who can ultimately handle the situation. So David says, I'm gonna sing. And he says, I will sing with the whole of my being. And then that's when he begins to grab the harp and the lyre and he's gonna wake up the dawn and he's gonna do all these things. David wants to to take everything within himself, all the resources that God has given him, the time that he has laid out before him, and he's gonna enter into worship. Now, you may not know... the harp and the lyre, I don't even, I, I kind of know what a harp is, barely know what a lyre is. I, I have no idea. I am not a skilled musician at all. And you may not be either. You may not even be a morning person. So like this text, as David's saying, man, I'm gonna wake up the dawn and worship God. You're already like, nope, I'm out because that's just not gonna work for me. It's not that we take this text and we say, okay, immediately, you know, well, how, how, does, how can I apply what David's doing exactly? How can I learn the harp? How can I learn the lyre? And then I'm gonna enter into a worship time. How can I become a, uh, a morning person? Whatever. That's not, I think, the key here. The key to entering into worship, despite difficulty and, and all the things that surround us, is that we worship with the whole of our being. David's going to take everything around him, the skills that God has given him, the, the, the talents that he has given him, the time that he has given him, And he's going to enter into worship. He's not going to escape. He's going to enter into worship with what he has before him. So what do you have? What personality has God uniquely wired you with? What skills do you have that you can use to be able to worship, to be able to enter into a time where the whole of your being is connecting to who God is? It could be just a commute, the time that you have from your car to work that you can use to be able to pray over a specific situation, be able to listen to something that's going to encourage you to be able to sing songs in your car because you don't want anybody else to hear you. So you do it in the car. Maybe it's the commute. Maybe it's just like one minute that you know you'll have alone. Like maybe you're a busy parent and you, you have young kids at home. And you're like, man, I can't even get a second alone. Maybe it's just that second. Like where can you find that one second to be able to just praise, worship, think about God, turn off the noise and just, just worship and center your heart on him, not escape or run away from, but to to enter into that. Maybe it's five minutes that you can schedule out on your calendar, that you know that in the busyness of your day, there's five minutes that you can spend to be able to just pray a psalm or to read a psalm out loud and just think about him. Doing this will begin to posture and set our heart to rely upon the only one who can ultimately help us take care of the situations that are at hand to give us rest when we're in need of it. And so that we can experience and love and know the source of our confidence. We worship in the face of worry by not escaping, but by utilizing the world around us to interact with the only source of confidence, the Lord himself. The second thing is that we don't only worship in the face of worry, but we also, uh, a confident heart also highlights unseen hope. Look at verses three through five. He's worshiping, but where is David worshiping? He's not worshiping privately. He's worshiping publicly. He says, I will praise you, Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Why is he doing this? He's he's apparently in some sort of public setting in place. Why is he saying and specifically pointing out that he's gonna do this among the nations, among the people? He answers it in verse four. He says, for your faithful love, is higher than the heavens and your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. David wants other people to see this. He wants to highlight it. He wants them to wake up to the realities of it. He wants them to know that that God is good and he is faithful and that he is glorious. 
My wife and I had the opportunity to uh, go to uh, Montana for vacation a couple weeks ago. Um, and we stayed, it was our first time in Montana, except for passing through it uh, real quick one time. And it's an absolutely gorgeous area. It was the Flathead Lake um, area. And we were able to stay kind of close to it um, and, and go out in the water and just see all the wildlife and, and different stuff. It was awesome. And uh, one day we decided to go up to Glacier National Park. And if you haven't done it before, I would highly recommend it. It is just like stunningly beautiful, just absolutely beautiful. And as we are planning out our time and our day there and stuff, you know, you're trying to figure out, okay, what things do you want to see at Glacier? Where do you want to go? And uh, this is a little bit heretical, but if in Seattle, um, me and my wife aren't hikers, um, or at least I'm not a hiker. She probably enjoys it a little bit more. Uh, but I know that goes against everything that uh, Seattle and Patagonia and everything that we stand for here. Uh, but I just can't, I just, I just struggle. Like I, when I'm on a hike, I just struggled to see the actual point of it. And um, <laughs> I, um, I had a friend uh, who sent me a meme yesterday, not knowing that I was even gonna bring up this illustration, but uh, in the meme it said, I don't know who needs to hear this, but living your life to the fullest doesn't have to involve hiking. Um, and that's... <laughs> Kind of my heart, my motto. Again, I feel bad because my wife isn't, she's, she's a little bit more uh, interested in it than I am. But uh, we went to Glacier and we're like, man, if you go to a national park, you have to hike it, right? So like there's parts of it that you have to go to and you have to go do. So um, we, we decided we're gonna, we're gonna hike it and, uh, or at least do a really small part of it. Um, and so we go on this hike and, uh, you know, again, the problem with me hiking is that I have just my head down, pushing forward. Let, let's get from point A to point B and then you just point B to point A. Let's just get this thing over with. And later on, we can tell our friends and family, we went hiking. And then that's the glory of hiking, right? Uh, so, so, you know, as you're pushing along on a hike, uh, one of the things I began to wonder in my mind is like, how do you know uh, when to like look around? Like, I mean, obviously you can see things and it's like, oh, that looks cool. But like, how do you, how do you know what to be looking for and when's the cool part and all that kind of stuff? Obviously most of the time the end is. But anyway, I'm just wondering this in my mind. And I begin to realize that you can find the cool parts of the hike when, especially on a very packed out hike, people are doing this. They have their phone out and they're doing this, right? They are either taking a selfie and there's something behind them that's pretty, or they're pointing it at something that you should look at, or potentially something that you should run away from if it's a bear or something like that, right? Uh, there's, that's like the international sign. And they're using kind of their phone to be this indicator, like, look here, go here, right? Like, like, celebrate this. And David is essentially doing this with this psalm. In a, in, a, in a very different way, David is saying, look at the Lord. Like, let, let me highlight this. He's worshiping among the peoples so the peoples look up from what they're involved in, what the nations are doing, all the work that they are completing. Look up and look out, see the glory of the Lord. David is pointing out to who the Lord is. And he's using and utilizing the specific situation and scenario, the current state of his heart to be that indicator that's pointing onward to have people see that there's something greater than the clouds, higher than the mountains, a love deeper than the ocean. He wants them to see it. He is highlighting something that they're not seeing. And I think 
Um, Paul actually communicates this idea very well in 2 Corinthians chapter four. And, and he says this, he says, now we have this treasure in clay jars. Essentially, what he's trying to say is we don't have it in fine china, right? Our, our, ourselves, our human state isn't fully built up in the best way possible. We're like clay jars. We, we, hold, uh, we hold the power of God. We hold this extraordinary power uh, in something that is broken. And he says that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body. And then get this, this is where I think it's key right here to this specific text. So that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul is saying that no matter what comes, no matter the things that happen, God is going to give us a purpose in our pain to be able to utilize that pain, to be able to utilize that hurt, that heartbreak, that failure, to be able to point back to the glory, the goodness, the graciousness, and the love of God. He wants to share and show that. He's not saying like, well, just put on a pretty face and and make it seem like everything's okay or wear a smile into church and, and just, just buck up, it's all gonna be all right. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, man, despite the difficulty in your life, God can use it. That when you have a relationship with the Lord, he's going to take whatever you're going through to be able to transfer that into a goodness and glory to share a future hope, which means that when we have a heart that is confident in the faithfulness of God, we highlight hope by being afflicted by sickness, but not crushed by it by being perplexed by why God has left us with questions or maybe something that's happened in our life, but not left to utter despair because we have a greater hope, by being persecuted, maybe verbally and physically, but knowing that we have not been so fully abandoned, that, that the Lord holds us and that he knows us, that by uh, being struck down by heartbreak and failure, that we are not utterly destroyed by it. And the people will see this. The nations will see it. Governments will see it, leaders will see it, your family will see it, coworkers will see it. This is how they will see the hope that's within us, not just by our testimony, not just by our words and phrases, not just by how we sing physically, but by how we act in the midst of the pain, heartbreak, and failure that we share. That is one of our greatest testimonies. We highlight unseen hope by being confident in what God has accomplished, that he holds the situation, that he will use our pain for his glory and our good. Next, a confident heart releases personal control. A confident heart releases personal control. Look at um, verses six. In verse six, this is where David is now going to shift over to Psalm 60. So before he was in Psalm 57, now he's gonna to begin to recall Psalm 60. And this is again, a celebration moment from previous victory that he's now proclaiming again right here. And he speaks from the perspective of God for the first half of it. He says, God has spoken in his sanctuary. He says, I will celebrate. 
I will divide up Shechem. I will apportion the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. And Judah is my scepter. All of these places are essentially regions or states of Israel that he's recalling and sharing and then presenting to us as an audience. And if you notice, God is using very possessive language with these people. He's saying they are his, they are mine, they are my people. Like they're a literal part of them. And then he begins to speak about them as, as rulers and scepters and, and, and different like kind of governmental tools um, as if they're like some sort of portions, and this is kind of uh, belittling it, but I'm not trying to, um, essentially as if they were like pieces on a risk board that he can move around and use to be able to conquer and develop his kingdom. And then compare the way that he's talking to them to this next group of people in verse nine. He says, Moab is my wash basin. He says, I throw my sandal on Edom. I shout in triumph over Philistia. All of these nations were ones that were essentially historic enemies of Israel, those that presented significant challenge to them. Uh, Moab, he says, is his wash basin. Essentially, uh, a wash basin, if you just Google image search uh, wash basin, which is what I did, uh, you'll find that it's like a kitchen sink. It's like literally like they are his kitchen sink. He washes his hands with them. He, he does, he, he, he utilizes them in that way. It says that he throws his sandal on Edom. Uh, and I actually, uh, someone came up to me after first service and brought this up to me. I, I didn't really actually fully know this, um, that when someone in Middle Eastern culture, especially during this time, throws their sandal at someone, this is essentially belittling them and is essentially saying, uh, trying to uh, essentially degrade them in some way. And so God is saying, man, I'm throwing my sandal. It's not just that he's trying to hit them with a shoe and hurt them. He's, he's literally trying to make a statement that, that he is in a power position over them. It'd also be similar as if uh, you had someone over to dinner and then as soon as they walked through the door, uh, they took their shoes off and then they handed them to you. You'd be like, okay. Uh, why didn't you just leave them down there? It's, it's the same kind of thing. Like there's a statement that's being made there. And then the last one is that he's talking about the Philistines and how he's gonna shout and triumph over them. And the, the Philistines were essentially this big nation um, that, that constantly fought against the Israelite people. And you know them uh, through uh, the story of David and Goliath. Goliath was one with the Philistines and he fought David earlier as they were constantly going through these different battles and all the things that they entered into. If you don't know that story, you can watch the Veggie Tale on it. I'm sure it's amazing. Um, I think that there is one. I'm pretty sure there is one. Uh, you can go find it, yeah. Uh, but uh, essentially, like he's saying, I'm going to triumph over this nation that you have historic issues with, over, like even before you've even entered into any amount of battle with them. Like I know I'm winning. Like that's, that is a ton of confidence by the Lord. But he says, I'm going to win. I'm going to shout triumph over them. The Lord is essentially communicating with all of these pictures that he is going to utilize and use and give us confidence in his ability to utilize and use these people for our good and his glory, that he's in control over them, that he's not afraid, he is not nervous about them, that he's gonna work all things out in the way that he pleases. And John Piper, a pastor and theologian, had a really good commentary on this uh, in which he describes it. It's a little long, but I think it's just really good. He says, picture Edom in rebellion against Yahweh and his people. 
Picture them mustering up thousands and thousands of warriors. Picture the, the iron chariots, the war horses snorting and stamping, the bulging muscles and bronze skin of the mighty men, the razor sharp swords, the awful pointed spears, the shields flashing in the sun, the unflinching countenance of seasoned soldiers. Picture a horde of fierce fighting men thundering through the valley of Seir, fearful, dreadful, fierce, and powerful. When God sees them, he sits down. He will wash his feet. With 18,000 fighting warriors approaching like a stampede of Texas longhorns, God sits down to wash his feet. And then as one would flick a fly, he tosses his shoe on Edom and 18,000 soldiers fall. God never even looked. He scarcely heard the noise. The world sits stunned at the victory and God sits with his feet in the water. And then he says this about the statement, which is awesome. It's gonna be on the screen. He says, God is never ruffled. He never jerks. When attacked from behind, he is never startled. At just the right moment, he tosses his shoe and all the enemies are crushed. He does not honor them with any nervous preparation. He has set his own schedule for the day and he will accomplish all his purpose. The enemy may try to interrupt, but he will not be able to, to cause the slightest pause in the washing of his feet Oh, the folly of resisting the Almighty. What fools he makes of men who strive against the maker. And this is why David is able to proclaim in verse six, save me with your right hand and answer me so that those you may love may be rescued. It's also why he's able to already proclaim in 12, 13, give us aid for human help is worthless. With God, we will perform valiantly. He will trample his foes. David knows that power exists in rest in God, not in man. And there's never a moment that God's getting nervous or worried about how any situation may end up. And in our lives, he's not challenged by the things that pop up. He's not nervous. It doesn't mean that we won't go through them, but he's not afraid about what might pop up in our life. He's not nervous about the things that are going on. Those individuals in our life that we think have so much control and power over us and who we are and what we believe, they hold no power in relation to who God is, what he's accomplished and the things he will do in our life. He is the ultimate source of power and authority over all things. And he has it in the palm of his hand. The power to control the seemingly uncontrollable is only found in the one who controls all things. The hard thing is, guess who doesn't control all things? Both me and you. We want to control all things. We think we'd like to control all things, but we don't. In him and him alone, has the ability to be able to control all things. So what do we do? We need to release control in our life to give over control to the Lord so that he may be able to work out his will in our life. So this means that maybe in the workplace, we're giving up trying to go further faster or talking about other people behind their back or um, maybe cheating or doing something that we know we shouldn't, even if it would have made us go further because ultimately we know like the Lord has our career in his hands and we're gonna operate by his kingdom standards, not our own. 
It means with our health, we'll do everything that we can to be able to be healthy people. There's nothing wrong with that. But ultimately, he holds every synapse in our brain. He knows every hair on our head. We can try to switch from canola oil to avocado oil, and that's amazing. But ultimately, he's the one who holds all of our future in his hands. With our family, we can do whatever we can to be able, and we should, to be able to be the best parents, to be able to be the best people, to, to love everyone equally. But ultimately, he's the one who knows the future of our kids. He's the one that knows the future of our parents. He knows. And so we release control to say, Lord, you take these things off my plate. I'm going to work them out. I'm going to do my best, but I'm going to live under the authority and structure that you had given me so that I may be able to see your faithfulness endure in this. And we rest in the fact that God is in control and that we know the God that is in control over all things. The last thing is that a confident heart exists by grace. It exists by grace and it exists by grace alone. And in verses 10 through 11, uh, David asks, and he's kind of referring back to God after God has made his statement. He says, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Then he asks, God, haven't you rejected us? God, you do not march out with our armies. Then he asks for aid against the foe. Essentially what he's trying to say is like, Lord, we're marching forward. We are doing these things, but I recognize and realize that you have not been helping us in certain situations. And he's, and he's seeing like the Lord isn't letting them prevail. The Lord isn't letting them have victory. And he's essentially asking why, why is this happening? And commentators believe that David asked this question when they began to experience, the Israelite people began to experience defeat in different places when they were battling against the Edomites. And so David asked this question. And he's like, what's happening, Lord? And what he begins to realize is that the Lord had left them not completely left them, but had left them from prevailing in battle because the Israelite people began to turn their hearts, turn to different things and reject essentially the commandments and obedience of the Lord. So David's like, Lord, have you rejected us? Have you left us? And in all honesty, based upon the deep history of Israel, if you look back all throughout the Old Testament, they would be saved by the Lord or they would recognize the Lord. Then they would rebel against him and then the Lord would have to come save them and he would save them and then they would rebel again. And this happened over and over and over again. And honestly, if God answers back to David and, and when David says, have you rejected us? The Lord could say, yeah. And he would be completely fair to do so. It would be within his right. The Israelite people did nothing for him to continue to give them the ability to prevail in battle. But God continues to give them the ability to work forward, to trample their foe, as it says in verse 13, only because of grace. Only because he remembers his covenant. Only because he remembers the promise that he made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There, the prophet Nathan is told from God to tell David something about the way that his kingdom will flourish and something that will come from it. This is what it says there. It says, the Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. And when your time comes and you rest on your ancestors, and this is important, this is the key, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. 
He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. Who is the descendant that Nathan proclaiming to, to, to David, is talking about here. It's Jesus. Ultimately, he is going to raise up Christ that one day Christ will come through the lineage of David to ultimately end up not only saving the Israelite people, but all of us to be able to give us new life, to be able to give us the ability to experience a perfect relationship with the Lord forever. And so that's why he won't reject them because he promised it in 2 Samuel 7 and he's not gonna leave that promise. He's not gonna forsake that covenant. He's going to hold fast so that one day they may be able to see this promise of a coming Messiah endure forever. And we know and we see that we're able to have that same Messiah bless and cover our lives as well. In Hebrews 8, it tells us that we have now experienced a better covenant, one that gives us new life in Christ, that anyone that wants to belong to him can come forward to him. That because of the life, the perfect life of Jesus, the death on the cross that he paid, the punishment that we were supposed to take, he took on our behalf and then was raised again on the third day so that we may be able to experience life. That act is a covenantal sign to us that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us, and that we can have complete and utter confidence to know that no matter what comes in our life, no matter what pops up, no matter how difficult life may be, we are known by and we are loved by the Father. And even more than that, we can approach him no matter what happens in our life. In Hebrews 4, the writer says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, this is Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Another way you could say that, another way that is translated is confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. We can have confidence because we are able to stand before the throne room of God with boldness that he has welcomed us in and that no matter what we may do, no matter where we may go, no matter the challenges that we face in our life, because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, we can walk forward with complete boldness in relationship with our Father. Our confident heart exists by grace alone. Are you facing a challenge in your life? Are you in need of comfort? Is there something going on that, that you just need steadfastness? Look not to what you can do, what others can do for you, a way of escape. Look to the mighty acts and works of the Lord, what he has accomplished on our behalf, what he has accomplished on the cross to be able to provide a confident heart 
to face whatever challenge may pop up in the present. Let me pray for us and we'll continue to worship. Lord, I pray for every individual in this room that is struggling with a heart of confidence. God, I pray that you help us to root ourselves not not in the things of this world, not in what we can do, not in anything that we can base our identity in, but God, may we root our identity or may we root our confidence in who you are, what you've accomplished. Give us hearts that can worship, that can highlight your glory and your goodness, that can let go of control and that can ultimately see that this is all rooted in grace, that we have been given a perfect relationship with you because of what your son accomplished on the cross. Lord, thank you for today. In your name we pray.